And welcome, everyone. I'm very excited about today's guest. He's one of my very favorites, Jay Bhattacharya. Jay is a uh, a academic beyond uh, reproach at Stanford University, where he's taught medical school for many, many years. Uh, he is someone that uh, was a close ally of the likes of Anthony Fauci and those at the infrastructure at the NIH and the uh, National Institute of Allergy and Immunology. And uh, when he dared to step forward and just uh, question whether a blanket lockdown was the optimum policy and sort of bringing out really, rather than following the Chinese Communist Party, there were some other options maybe available that would be equally, if not more efficacious without all the downside. Again, always in medicine, risk reward is what we're trying to figure out. And very strangely during this pandemic, that seemed to have been at least whoever was contemplating a risk reward analysis was summarily dismissed. So, of course, Dr. Kelly Victory is here as well. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. We'll talk about the consequences of some of these misadventures. And for me, Dr. Bhattacharya is going to be the poster child for the excesses of this pandemic. I'll tell you what I mean after this. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. So I want to get right to my guest, of course, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University, research associate, the National Bureau of Economics uh, Research, uh, also a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, uh, and as well at the Stanford Freeman Spoli Institute Research, focusing on economics of healthcare. And that's what we're going to get into a little bit today, because some of the choices around uh, this pandemic had massive and persistent effects on not just uh, economics, but uh, well-being of young people and mental health of this country. Jay, welcome back. Nice to be back, Drew. Thank you. So as we, I, I have been slowly parsing, you know, what happened and putting this thing together and trying to understand how the whole world really seemed to have gone mad, for particularly for, for a year. As you look back, explain to people that may not know your position and what happened to you. Maybe you can give them a little thumbnail of what happened and perhaps how, how you see that all now. Sure. So, uh, I, I mean, I, for me personally, I've been uh, writing on it, on infectious disease epidemiology for almost uh, two decades, uh, going back to the HIV days, uh, and on antibiotic resistance, a whole host of topics. Uh, early in the pandemic, I had this hypothesis that, we, that actually the disease was more widespread than realized. I, I ran a couple of studies to check for antibody levels in the population. I found in California that was true. Uh, almost 50 times more infections than cases, a death rate, an infection fatality rate that was much lower than the World Health Organization is saying. That sort of put me in the, in the middle of a firestorm. Um, I, I always... Like when you looked at those data, it was really clear older people were dying at really high rates, younger people much less so. Children much, much, much lower risk. The lockdown then didn't make any sense to me. And so in October of 2020, I wrote uh, a document with uh, Sunetra Gupta of Oxford University. Uh, she's one of the best epidemiologists in the world. And, and uh, Martin Kuldorf of Harvard University, another incredible biostatistician epidemiologist. 
we, we argued, it's called the Great Barrington Declaration, and we argued to lift the lockdowns uh, on because it was harming children. Uh, we can talk, I'm sure we'll talk about that in just a bit about what harms they've done, but the harms have been tremendous. The psychological health and well-being of uh, basically every country on earth, the specific focus on harming poor people. The lockdowns have been devastating the lives of the poor and the working class. Uh, at the same time, it wasn't really protecting people against the disease. Um, so what you needed was a better approach, an approach that focused protection on older people who were really at high risk from the disease while lifting the lockdowns. And that put me in the firestorm. Um, I mean, I had uh, uh, the head of the National Institute of Health, Francis Collins, uh, write an email to Tony Fauci calling me and my colleagues, fringe epidemiologists, I uh, started getting smeared in the press, uh, death threats. It was really, it was really nasty. Um, but I think uh, if you look back, you, can we really say the lockdowns did well in protecting us against the disease? The disease spread everywhere, regardless of the lockdowns. Uh, this is not the kind of disease that we can stop. We actually don't have a technology to stop the spread of the disease. We do have technologies to protect people against the severest outcomes of the disease, you know, the vaccines um, and so on, and, uh, and, and then also some of the treatments. Um, so we should have done that. Protected people against the disease who were most vulnerable, lifted the lockdowns. Um, I think if you look back, a lot, many, many people uh, that were damaged would not have been damaged had we followed that strategy, that Great Branch and Declaration strategy. Uh, and you know, it's not—it's actually funny. It's not even—it's not—it's not—it's not an accident actually, because that document, while uh, we wrote it in October of 2020, it's not novel, Drew. This was the same old pandemic plan that we followed for a century of, of respiratory viral pandemics, you know, fairly successfully. Um, if we'd done that same old plan this time, it, 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 people would, would still have died from bad infectious disease, but we would have lost many fewer people from the lockdown harms, uh, and uh, we likely would have protected people against COVID better as well. What, what happened to Fauci and Collins? What, what do you think, what, what adulterated their thinking so severely? Uh, the psychology of it is, is super, I think you need Shakespeare to do it justice, frankly. Um, it's, it's likely, it seems likely at this point, uh, that Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, especially Tony Fauci, uh, while the, I'm not, I don't know for certain if this started in a in a wet lab or, or in a lab or in the wet market. I think likely the, uh, it, this was the result. This virus was the result of gain of function research intentionally funded by the NIH um, and in collaboration with Chinese researchers uh, in Wuhan. Uh, I don't know that for certain that that's the case. What I do know is that it it looked like for all the world that Tony Fauci thought that people would think it, that was the case. And so he and Francis Collins, in the earliest days of the pandemic, January, February, 2020, they spent most of their time not worried about how to stop the spread of disease, how to protect vulnerable people. They spent most of their time trying to cover up the possibility that there was even a lab leak to begin with, to make it into a conspiracy theory to say there might be a lab leak. Um, so you have, like, on the one hand, this sense that, like, oh, my gosh, maybe I caused this disease. And at the same time, the gain-of-function work, what it was supposed to do was produce early vaccines in the case of emerging infectious disease. Well, you had an early vaccine candidate um, from this almost, like in January, 2020, there was an early vaccine candidate, again, as a result of the gain of function work. You have both at the same time, you have somebody like Tony Fauci who spent his life with a, basically failing to get an HIV vaccine. He wanted to be the next Jonas Salk, failed at it, uh, pushed for gain of function work, which is potentially causes massive pandemic in January, 2020. He's gonna cause this massive pandemic but at the same time, you have this lifeline in the form of this vaccine. If you just get to the point where we test it and get in a disseminated population, he'll be the savior. He'll be the person that uh, is, is the next general assault. 
And so he pushes for lockdowns, uh, uses every ounce of power he has to uh, delegitimize de people who oppose him. First on people who thought it might be a lab leak, and then next on people who thought the lockdowns were damaging and useless. Um, and then finally, when the vaccine comes, it doesn't stop disease transmission. You're not going to get rid of this disease with this vaccine. It just doesn't do that. Um, it's just tragic. I mean, I think it is a classic case of hubris in the context of, in, mm. in, in, in the case of, uh, of Tony Fauci. And, and uh, hubris always has a nemesis, if I've read my Greek mythology right. <laughs> and, and I and I, I have noticed that being hubristic was really the enemy of this pandemic. I, I had a few minutes where I was feeling hubristic, and it it was not it was not a, my prettiest moment. And and I I think that it 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 we should have a humble, you know, we should be have humility in relation to stuff like this. This was an unclear situation; things were evolving quickly. Uh, people were doing the best they could, but it was pretty clear there there were excesses, and then we couldn't back away from these excesses, which was to me one of the most astonishing parts about this. But when it pertains to not being able to even admit that this was a disease that almost exclusively injured the very elderly. And, ha and, and still, we have seemed to have trouble talking about the um, effects on the young. Somebody was carrying on in Great Britain about how, but there were there were so many cases of multi-system inflammatory, and, and, and I looked up the incidence of the multi-system inflammatory disorder in Great Britain for the year of COVID. It was exactly the same as the incidence of tuberculosis in children. So are we going to shut down because there was tuberculosis affected dozens of hundreds of children? Are we going to shut everything down? I'd rather have the the inflammatory thing than tuberculosis if I'm a kid, frankly. Uh, and, you know, these are serious. There are serious conditions. So nobody could contextualize that this has still been a big problem, that nobody contextualized this illness. But why are they still? Well, let me ask first about the older versus younger thing. I have a theory why the older versus younger thing happened, why they were unwilling to ad even admit that uh, young people were not affected. Do, do you have any theory about that? I do, actually. Um, I, I think it, it you know, uh, one of the things that's striking is all of the people that were at the top of public health bureaucracy in the United States are veterans of the HIV wars. Um, and a lot of their instincts come from their the their experience with hiv uh the uh, and it's it's important to, like what that means so so for instance hiv there is no immunity after after your hiv you, it is a disease that will kill you uh in the eventually right uh there there's no tr there, in, in the early days there was no treatment uh now there of course there is uh there's no vaccine there's no immunity and so with covid the, the new disease they assume well what if it's like hiv what if it doesn't produce immunity uh, almost all of the mm. harm from hiv is long HIV. AIDS is long HIV. It happens years after you get infected initially, right? Um, so what if mm -hmm. all of the harm from COVID is long is uh, from SARS-CoV-2 is is long COVID, right? What if that's what if that's the primary harm? Um, would the uh, HIV is stopped by recommendations about masking? Uh, I mean, sorry, condom use. Uh, you know, uh, you you uh, you you have this like these recommendations and. Uh, the rhetoric around HIV, especially in the early days, was you, you, want, to, you want everyone to think they're equally at risk, even though that, was, that wasn't true then. It, it, and I think it, uh, uh, the, the idea is that you don't want to stigmatize uh, gay populations or IV drug abusers. So you, you try to like, create this sense that everyone's equally sharing in the, in the, in the, in the harm and the risk. Um, I think that part, that, I think that, uh, that nearly every single dysfunction we've had 
in COVID policy stems from a sort of mistaken lessons drawn from the HIV pandemic? I, I think it's a little more, my theory is it's a little more endemic in their training, particularly, I understand the the authority structure is people that are in HIV. And I remember I was deep in the AIDS epidemic treating patients. And I remember you know advocating that, that the, because we kind of expected it to break out of the, the gay community. Uh, we saw the same rhetoric with monkeypox all over again, like they learned nothing from COVID. Here, here we go again. That How do you else do you address the risk population and get them properly vaccinated if you don't identify them? But okay. But I think the reason for this is that there is been, and, and Kelly kind of alerted me to this last week, that the, the entire study of public health has moved away from biology and health vaccine therapies and all the other things that public health has always been and become a, a a a discipline whose sole priority is equity of outcome of healthcare distribution not equity of resource distribution but equity of outcome and you when you're in a pandemic and you have a 17 year old with a you know maybe gets bad covid versus an 85 year old with you know, a stroke patient with bad COVID and a 35-year-old with uh, diabetes and obesity and bad COVID, they're going to have different outcomes. They're going to be different no matter what in the best possible distribution of resources. Those are three cases that are going to have different outcomes because that's medicine. This notion that there had to be equity of outcome. I remember when the vaccine distribution first rolled out, it was all about equity of distribution. I was like, what, where'd that come from? We just got to get as many people vaccinated as possible. No, 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 equity. I got COVID the first time trying to get the vaccine. I couldn't get it because I didn't fit their equity, which was this weird equity model they had. Um, am I on to anything with all this equity of outcome, equity of resource distribution, very important equity of outcome Fool's errand in a pandemic. Uh, first, let me say, Drew, I used to listen to you back back then. I learned a lot from you. You probably didn't know you were teaching me. Oh um, uh, but, that's uh, one of the things I, that motivated I, me to go and to talk about it. I, I really AIDS pushed right. put me in the radio. It really did. I, I was I and it was Fauci telling us. He was telling young guys, you know, you got to educate because no one was talking to young people particularly about what this thing was. It was crazy to me that no one had heard about it. But anyway, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think that, that that definitely is on to something. Um, the the uh, this idea, like, the, let's talk about the vaccine rollout. The obvious way to use this vaccine is to protect older people. The, the, they're the ones that die at high rates from, from the disease. Uh, you know, uh, if you look at the infection fatality rate from the first uh, year of the, of the virus, from you know, a whole bunch of studies, it turns out that it's like if you're over the age of 70, it's pretty high. Uh, you know, it, it doubles with every seven years of age. Um, so you can go to, you know, if you're 80, 85 years old, you're just looking at mortality rates on the order of infection mortality rates on the order of five, six, seven percent. That's a ridiculously high rate for single disease. On the other hand, for young people, it's very low, like below the age of 70. It's something like 0.05 percent for youngsters, for children. The survival rate is something like 99.999. I'm going to run out of nines here, Drew. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's very yeah. low. Um, and so the right thing to do with the vaccine is. Prioritize old people. That's who's who dying from it. Uh, forget about all of the other equity overlays. Use the ca the calculations. How do we use this incredible tool we have to save life? Isn't that what medicine is about? Um, uh, I, I thought so. 
I thought so. I, I, that concept got challenged all of a sudden, I, and it was really odd to see. But let me ask one last question before we bring Kelly in here. When would it be necessary for there to be a global lockdown? I, I can't. When when is that sort of a, a reasonably good practice? And, and I want to after we bring Kelly, and I want to dig into a little bit of the history of lockdown in Asia because that history is different than in the West. But if you could answer that question about whether or not there is a reasonable time to do a lockdown. I, I think that lockdown should be thrown away as a tool in public health. It is There is never a reasonable time. The key principle is focus protection. I, identify as quickly as you can the high-risk groups. Move heaven and earth to protect them with the technology you have. Work to develop new technologies. Uh, be compassionate. For the rest of society, even if there is a risk, if it's their lower risk, the harms from shutting civilization down, even for short periods of time, are devastating, especially to the poor, the vulnerable, the working class. The reason why the lockdowns failed is very simple. Uh, most people are not in an economic position to, man, to handle an extended lockdown, not for, not for a week, mm -hmm. not even some, but for the poorest of the poor, not even for a day. Um, and they, their lives get damaged and hurt. They, uh, the, you know, the, the, the poor, um, they suffered COVID at the highest rates. Their kids didn't go to school. They lost, they lost opportunities to work in the poorest countries on the earth. What happened is that many of them starved as a consequence of the economic, uh, economic damage caused by the lockdowns. Lockdowns are a blunt, cruel tool that are not scientific in nature. With the scientific idea, the right humane approach to this pandemic and any pandemic is identify high-risk groups use resources to protect them the highest risk people and ask the rest of society to continue as best they can given that everyone is in common facing this risk and and isn't that the way medicine has practiced uh, in the fast face of pandemics for a thou literally a thousand years uh and we have gotten better at it and more focused at it and we strive to vaccine and we strive to therapeutics in the meantime and we we figure that out i knew we would i knew we'd come up with stuff now what we do with the vaccines and all we can kind of talk about that um i had one other comment and that is i asked at the beginning what happened to fauci and collins what what adulterated them do you think that aside from the motivational distortions they may have had by feeling guilty consciously or otherwise about gain-of-function research. Don't you think their Chinese colleagues had a disproportionate, a much more significant influence on their decision-making than it should have? I think they really, and the World Health Organization did the exact same thing, as best I can tell. They, they, they looked at what was going on in Wuhan and, and were convinced by the local officials there that not only... Was it working? But this is what something everybody should adopt. And why wouldn't you? It's it's, and the the fact that it was weird and never been done before and uh, had massive downside didn't seem to occur to anybody. But what are your thoughts? I completely agree with that. In fact, we know that with certainty. Um, there are a, a whole tranche of of FOIA'd emails again from the earliest days of the pandemic, where the NIH. Uh, they they tried to get uh, somebody from the United States to go on this mission to China. Uh, like early January, mid-January, I think. Um, they came back from this mission. This guy, Cliff Lane, who's Tony Fauci's uh, deputy, came back from this mission and sent an email out saying, what, did Ch what China did look like it worked. We have a very difficult decision to make. You know, they said, he says he wrote that it, it worked, and it, but at high cost. Um, 
the Chinese example was incredibly influential in the World Health Organization and at the top levels of the U.S. science bureaucracies. Uh, in part, maybe they were thinking of SARS-1 um, and what happened during SARS-1 where the, where the Chinese yep. uh, actually did, I mean, the, the disease didn't spread very far. I guess it got to Toronto, but it didn't spread very far. And uh, sort of local local restrictions seemed to do the trick. And they, maybe they thought this is yep. just like that. Local restrictions in China, of course, albeit it was much more draconian local restrictions than in SARS-1, did the trick. You know, in Chinese, China, they're locking people into their houses and bolting them indoors and throwing, separating newborns from moms, things like that. Um, much worse than SARS-1. But yeah, here you have, it, it's, uh, it, it, it worked. Well, maybe if that's true, and then they look at Italy and they see body bags in, in cathedrals. Uh, you know, it's, it was absolutely shocking. And Italy was there, like their conclusion was Italy was too late to lock down. And so they thought, okay, if we compare those two, China, China worked, Italy was too late, didn't work. Uh, their healthcare systems got overrun. It's going to happen here if we don't lock down. And that's why they adopted mm-hmm. lockdown despite century of pandemic plans that suggested that was, would be a mistake. And now evidence, although I find it bizarre that people still cling to the idea that it worked or that we should be doing more of this kind of thing. I, it's just, I can't, I feel like I'm missing something. I, I asked, uh, who would I, oh, I, Mark McDonald, I interviewed him, the psychiatrist the other day, and I said, how do I know I'm not missing something or I'm not deluded? I, I want to check my, my judgment very, very carefully because I, I can't get what's going on uh, in some of these other opinions. It's hard to understand. But let's take a little break. I want to bring Kelly Victory in here. We'll be right back. It's Dr. Babe, Jay Bhattacharya. And you see now perhaps why I say he is going to be the poster child for the excesses of this pandemic he was vilified for having a rational idea and just raising his hand and bringing it to the fore and suggesting maybe we do what we've always done and what would work and what clearly in retrospect would have been the right policy this this is the man that is the the poster child for the excesses of this pandemic be right back with kelly victory for a long time, I've been talking about the holy grail of skincare, Genucel, and the amazing results that both Susan and I have seen. I'm a big fan of Genucel's Silky Smooth XV. It's a moisturizer soaked right into my skin instantly, and with its immediate effects, I saw fine lines and wrinkles visibly disappear within 12 hours. Susan loves Genucel's vitamin C serum, infused with the purest vitamin C, absorbs to the deepest layer of the skin thanks to Genucel's proprietary skincare technology. I am a snob when it comes to using products on my face. The dermatologist makes a ton of money from me. But when I was introduced to Genucel, I was so happy because it's so affordable and it works great. I was introduced to the Ultra Retinol Cream, which I love at night. All the eye creams are amazing. People notice my skin all the time, and I'm so excited because it's actually working. And right now, Genucel has bundled my favorite products and Susan's for you to try today for up to 60% off retail pricing. That's right. Save up to 60% on my favorite Genucel products today. Just go to Genucel.com Drew to see what's in our bundles and receive an extra 10% off at checkout when you enroll in their personal concierge at checkout. That again is genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash D-R-E-W. The parallel economy has empowered us to care for our health, well-being, as well as longevity. Likewise for us pet parents who now have a place to go when it comes to keeping the family dogs, cats, even horses in the best shape possible. As a dog dad, I'm thrilled to be working with Pet Club 24-7. 
a company founded by two guys who lost dogs to serious conditions, including cancer. Pet Club 24-7 has an incredible array of products, including a line of supplements for humans, such as the Inforce Plus Corollius Versicolor and Inforce Corollius Versicolor with Reishi. My friend and colleague, Christina Ferrari, a cancer survivor herself, swears by it. When I was diagnosed, the doctor in the emergency room told me, you have two years to live. Oh boy. Along with the stem cell, I took these. I have been in remission for eight years now. For dogs, mush puppy treats are a fan favorite. Rex, you want to, oh boy. Oh, he came right. Oh, there he is. They are also made with the Coriolis Versicolor Mushroom, which supports their immune system, according to hundreds of clinical studies. Here's Kristen Ludlow, National Vice President. That strain does matter. We do have the most potent strain, and we also extract it in a proprietary way. And that's why we've been having such wonderful experiences with these products. Mush puppies are made here in the U.S. There are no fillers. It's non-addicting. Your dog can't accidentally overdose. Go to drdrew.com slash petclub247 for a discount off the list price. That is drdrew.com. P-E-T-C-L-U-B-247, Pet Club 247. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. And welcome, Dr. Kelly Victory. And uh, Kelly, you've heard us talking here. I'm going to let you take over or take the wheel for a minute. But uh, do also, uh, as part of this, we need to get into the the uh, economic consequences of this lockdown. You know, what what you know, how much of what we're all contending with now, uh, you know, well, I mean, obviously, pouring as $3 trillion in the economy. Hmm, I guess that could be inflationary. But anyway, there's a lot more than just that going on. So Kelly, have at it. it terrific. Thanks. And so, thanks so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya. I'm re- really happy to have you here. I do want to stick with the lockdown discussion for a few minutes because specifically I want to get into uh, some of the economic impacts of it. You certainly have command of healthcare economics and then also the psychosocial uh, ramifications of the lockdown. We we know what the one thing we know the lockdowns didn't do was stop the spread of COVID. Uh, it did have a lot of other impacts. Um, before you and Drs. Gupta and Koldorf wrote the Great Barrington Declaration in October of 2020, great piece of work, and you uh, you penned that and put really a humanitarian spin on it. To really try to identify you know, what the impact would be uh, and and give a suggestion for what was common sense with regard to our response um, to this public health crisis. And, but as you point out, it wasn't really a novel idea. We've known we should always risk stratify. And in June of that year, some months prior to the Great Barrington Declaration, June 9th, I think it was, the CEOs of the Cleveland Clinic and the Mayo Clinic penned a, an op-ed to the New York Times predicting that the results of the lockdown would be far more devastating than the results of COVID, the virus itself. They predicted that more people would die from the lockdown than from the pandemic, than from COVID. Do you think that that has, is what came to fruition? Uh, there's no question. That, uh, that the lockdowns killed more people than lives saved from COVID. 
Uh, I mean, COVID itself is a deadly disease. Uh, the question isn't, do, do, is COVID worse than lockdown? The question is, do the lockdowns actually save any lives at all on, from COVID? And uh, the best case you can make is that it, it pushed COVID out until after the, after the development of a vaccine. Um, so like for that, that you, maybe you can point to you know, Australia or New Zealand, they experienced COVID after the development of vaccine. Uh, but for the rest of the world, it, it didn't work. COVID spread regardless of the lockdown and uh, the lockdowns are implied. And, and in answer to your, the, really the heart of your question, it is absolutely yes. The lockdowns were absolutely devastating to the lives of the poor and the vulnerable and the working class and children around the world. I'll just give you a couple of data points on this. In March of 2021, the U UN estimated that 238,000 children had died in South Asia alone. That's one year into the lockdowns. Uh, 238,000 children had died in South Asia alone as a consequence of the economic dislocation caused by the lockdown. They died from starvation primarily, but also from uh, skipped vaccinations for, you know, for childhood vaccinations that are absolutely critical to the health of children. Um, we basically thought for a full two years that the only threat to human life was COVID, when in fact there are many, many threats to human life uh, that include economic harm uh, and, and also medical harm. And by, by ignoring those priorities, we basically consigned, I think, millions of, of poor people to death. Mm. Precisely. And so what happened was what happened was we took people of all of the errors that were made in the public health response to this pandemic. And that's a long list from which to choose. One of the gravest was acting, as you point out, as if we were all at equivalent risk when we knew from the very beginning that that was not the case. We knew that healthy young people under the age of 30 had such a de minimis risk from COVID as to be uh, you know, almost indistinguishable from zero. Yet we consigned those people to hunger, to absolute lack of health care. People missed routine screenings, everything from mammograms to skin cancer screenings. I've told Drew in the past, you know, people came into the ER having had chest pain for days. And when you ask them, why did you wait so long? They'd say, well, I was afraid I would get COVID or I, I didn't want to go out of my house. So it was really yeah, a transfer a of, of yep. illness and disease uh, that was just tragic. Talk a little bit about the economic impact of uh, of the lockdown. We know that the physical impact, the health impacts were devastating, but I think not very many people recognize that so much of what we are living today with regard to quote, supply chain issues, for example, a lot of this is a direct result of what we did with this lockdown. You are absolutely right, uh, Kelly. And as, uh, as, Drew, as Drew pointed out just, just a little bit ago, um, when you print or you borrow $6 trillion in order to pay people to stay at home so that they don't starve during a lockdown, well, you know, that's going to have consequences. It was utterly predictable that it would lead to uh, the inflation that we're seeing. It was, it was, it's, those, are not, mm -hmm. those are not like coincidences. When you disrupt uh, world trade, you know, we globalized our economies last 40 years has been actually a big signal success in some ways. A, a billion people lifted out of poverty around the world. You globalize your economy. Poor countries reorganize their economies around the, so that the, so they can fit into the global economy. And then overnight, you break it. You say, okay, our promises we made are gone. Um, 
supply chains get disrupted, what that means is that the people that are making those goods lose their jobs. People that are making, uh, you know, on the on the you know one two dollars a day of income or less, that exploded by almost a hundred million people because of the the economic dislocation caused by the lockdowns. That is going to have tremendous negative consequences. And closer to home, um, you know, the, the during the lockdown, the states that locked down the hardest had high unemployment rates, eight nine percent, whereas the states that locked down less had much less unemployment. Um, you know, th- there was going to be economic comment. Whenever you have a a, a disease like this, a, a pandemic like this, you're going to have some economic harm. The lockdowns made it worse. Um, another economic harm, although maybe economic isn't the right word for it, we closed our schools. Children who uh, suffered the longest from these closed schools with, with it very inadequate uh, you know, online school replacing it, they will, they will live poorer lives. They will have, uh, you know this from decades of social science work, they will have, they will have a harder time finding jobs, they will not get it as well educated as they ought to have been. And as a consequence of their poorer lives, they will lead shorter lives, less healthy lives. Uh, we consigned our kids in the United States, especially our poor kids, minority kids, to a generation of inequality, a generation of, of, of poverty, and a generation of poor health in order to appease people who, uh, who were very scared about COVID, thinking that it was really kids that were, that were at risk to them, when in fact that was never the case. Um, we never, we did not need to do that in order to protect older people from COVID. And in fact, doing that did not protect older people from COVID. Um, so it's, it's, it's tragic. I mean, I think the economic harms, we're, we're seeing them play out and they will be playing out, I think, for decades. We Guys, knew very early question. on, for can example, I was going to say, we knew very can, on, can, for can, example, that, that children were not vectors. The idea that children needed to be locked down because otherwise they would bring COVID home to elderly grandparents or their parents and people at home. We knew that children were not good vectors. They carry very low viral loads, even when they get COVID. Uh, and the places that didn't do lockdowns, places like Sweden that didn't shut their schools, uh, did not see an uptick in kids bringing, bringing COVID home from school. I'm sorry, Drew. What were you going to go? It, oh, very, I just two quick questions I have. Um, you, one of you, we put up a tweet here where you had said the definitive history of this pandemic will once be, you know, once it's written, we'll, you know, particularly look at the devastation of the schools. But I, I have a more sort of imminent concern about that definitive history, which is why, why aren't we? Why isn't priority one of the medical system, the epidemiological uh, professionals, the journalists, to figure out what we got right and what we got wrong? Why, why isn't that being? Why isn't that just being a massive? In, why aren't the universities the source of intellectual sort of inquiry into into what we just did? And yet there seems to be absolutely nothing going on. Maybe it is. I just don't see it. But it seems to be a zero. It's that to me is uncanny. Uncanny. I think the I think the problem is Drew is that so many people uh, who would be writing this history normally were implicit in the decision making that led to the lockdowns and the strategy. Um, I mean, so what you're hearing, I think, is a quiet admission of guilt. Um, I mean, nobody can honestly say this this policy was a success. Uh, but the problem is like that uh, that uh, <laughs> the people that were harmed by it are deserve deserve a 
uh, deserves some some kind of honest reckoning around it. Like, uh, you know, we talked, I think, at some point in the, in the past about uh, morbidity and mortality conferences, right? So after a patient dies, you uh, you have a, a conference among all the physicians that were supposed to manage the patient, managing the patient, not with an eye toward pointing fingers, but to just to get an honest assessment of what went wrong so you don't do it again. We owe the patient, we owe the world that, um, and it will happen. It, it's, it, it can, you can, you can try to, to stay silent, you know, after, after something really, really bad happens, there's this inclination to try to just try to move on, pretend it never happened. Uh, but this is too big a, an event in the history of the world. It has harmed too many people. And by that, I mean both COVID and the lockdowns uh, for there not to be an honest assessment, an M&M conference. And it, it will happen, Drew. Okay, good. I uh, think, you, you I think truly, there, well, I think... Right, yeah, I think I think as Dr. Bhattacharya is saying that you know many of the people who are complicit in this don't want to acknowledge their guilt. If we circle back to uh, the statement you were making uh, at the open of the show, Drew, about this issue with public the schools of public health, I received the bulk of my public health training at Harvard, where I am currently persona non grata because they do not want to acknowledge this uh, at all. They are interested in equity. Uh, these schools of public health have become uh, essentially factories for social justice warriors, and we must therefore act as if everyone is at equivalent risk, everyone must suffer the same um, you know, mandates, everybody must have the same thing. Um, these are the same schools that are suggesting that physicians uh, don't point out, for example, that obesity of all of the risk factors for COVID, obesity was clearly the most significant, other than age, by the way, and there's nothing you can do, unfortunately, about your age. Uh, but obesity is something that they didn't want us to call out. We aren't even supposed to refer to people as, uh, as being obese anymore. And these schools of public health, I think, are really, really at fault uh, for having done this. Um, we know we've never used lockdowns before. And I think, uh, as Dr. Bhattacharya is saying, we need to answer for why this time, why did we implement mandates for everything from, we know that masks don't stop the spread of respiratory viruses. We know that the lockdowns would do far more harm than good. We know that social distancing was a completely made up construct with no history in public health or epidemiology and on and on. Why, Dr. J, did this time, why did we implement these things? Yeah, I mean, I was telling Drew earlier, I think part of, the, uh, part of it was just the instinct for HIV, the, the, for almost all of the leaders in public health, uh, had, were they're trained in HIV, and they sort of misapplied the lessons of HIV here. Uh, actually, like uh, I, I, I think uh, there's another thing that went on here. Once they had adopted this strategy, the lockdown was the strategy. They had to they had to somehow convince the public to go along, and so they adopted strategies that were would otherwise I would thought of as entirely unethical to do that, right? So for one yeah. is. I mean, fear mongering. I mean, do you, you know, yeah. I see some of these ads that, that they did. They just, it was just unbelievable to watch. Uh, and, and, you know, they had to get young people to, to, to agree to do this, do these things. They weaponized the empathy, the natural good naturedness of young people against themselves. They said, look, if you don't wear a mask, you're going to kill grandma. Do you want to kill grandma? You don't get, you don't, uh, you don't, if you, if you, if you go visit uh, your, your, your dying relative, you're going to spread COVID. And, uh, you're going to spread COVID everywhere. They weaponized people's empathy against each other. Uh, they created this sense that every single person that you meet and know is a biohazard. Civilization can't go on like that. You can't actually have 
a, a functioning civilization where we believe that every other human alive is a biohazard to me. Um, yeah. They use these tactics to, to get their way once they decided that lockdown was the only way. They, they, they thought that they knew best um, and that any tactic, no matter how unethical, was okay. Yeah, that, that to me was just an astonishing reality. And the, my, my last question, I'll let Kelly just drive the ship again. If you were to, I, I really want to understand the other side. And so, you know, I, I'm always want to check myself, doubt myself. Let me ask you to do this, Jay, which is what would the case be if, if you were a somebody trying to advocate for locking down and given the history you've had with lockdown, what is the case to be made? And what would you tell yourself about what happened the, to make the, you know, sort of trying to look at this from the other side of the table? You know, you tell yourself, you know, we had to, we didn't know, we saved lives, we did, we had to do, we did anything to get to the vaccine. I mean, is that what they would tell themselves? Is there something, is there a more elaborate story that people have to tell themselves? No, I think, I think that's, I think what you just said is exactly the case that people told themselves. They said, okay, this is a very bad disease. Uh, we have a potential tool to solve it. Vaccine, we just have to get there. If we get there, uh, we can protect as many lives as possible. And a lot of them, a lot of the people that, that, did, that made these decisions, they don't have a lot of social science training. So they don't see that uh, the harms to the poor in, in, in a visceral way from ending economic activity. They, they just don't think economic activity, they just think economic activity means money when it, actually it means lives and health and, uh, and, and opportunity. Um, so they look at it and say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Some people will, 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 uh, will we, we lock down, people may lose their jobs but we can pay them. Um, and in the meantime, and, and in the meantime, we'll develop this vaccine that'll solve that epidemic. That I think is pretty close to the, the end of the story. Um, then when the vaccines come, um, they think we have to get to 90% people vaccinated or else you won't get herd immunity. Ignoring the data that this vaccine does not stop transmission, so you can't get herd immunity with ninety percent or or whatever. You need one hundred and twenty percent of the population vaccinated to get herd immunity, and uh, best I can tell, that's that's basically impossible. Um, uh, uh, so so you what you have is uh, public health people telling themselves stories about how they can be heroes, uh, adopting ideas about uh, about about success of of with using impossible plans. Uh, pretending that we have technologies we have, pretending the knowledge that we don't have, rather than just relying on tried and true principles of, of harm reduction, uh, risk identification, uh, and, and resource allocation to, minim to, to minimize the harm from an uh, infectious disease, minimize the harm from a, uh, from a disease, rather than to try to play the hero and say we can save everyone when we clearly couldn't. Now, you guys, hang on, Kelly, I'm sorry, I'm going to do one more thing before I let you go. I, I th there was a guy on my Rumble rant uh, sort of uh, chat stream here, and he was saying some really wild, aggressive things about what lockdowns had did, had done, and I called him out as a Chinese bot. I said, "This is the CCP rhetoric," and and he got very quiet and then responded with this. The China zero COVID lockdown is the gold standard. The whole world needs to implement indefinitely until SARS-CoV-2 is 100% eradicated from the face of the earth. There's somebody on my Rumble st chat stream that said that out loud. That is the... That, well, the I, I, just, I don't imagine anybody in this country saying that. That literally has to be a Chinese bot or no, operative well, or was, something. And that's what the world was fighting. That's what was well, happening what, from all sides. 
that's that's where I was going to go when you when you handed it back to me. I was going to say I want to move on and talk about um, censorship. But my last comment about this lockdown was, and I've spent a tremendous amount of time in China. I, I looking at their healthcare system um, back prior to the uh, 2008 Olympics that were in Beijing. I actually did a big analysis to see if we wanted to be the providers of the uh, healthcare for the, that Olympic game. And I came back and told uh, the people who had hired me, I said, run away, be afraid, be very afraid. We don't want to do this. But the reality is that a totalitarian government like China has no problem simply um, putting people in lockdown. Prior to that Olympics, because air quality was so poor in Beijing, the Chinese government simply decided, we know how to fix the air quality. We will simply move tens of millions of people from Beijing. We will pick them up, we'll pick their factories up, and we will move them thousands of miles away into the middle of nowhere, and we'll clear up the air quality. People have no say-so there. The Chinese government decides that if they make a decision that this is the way to do it, we'll simply bolt people in their houses and not let them come out, and we'll make the decision. Um, that's what they do. The idea that others adopted that concept when we know how dangerous it is, is really, really terrifying. Um, I do want to talk to you about censorship, Dr. Bhattacharya, because uh, Drew and I talk about it all the time. Um, I have no question that it had a profound impact on the trajectory of this pandemic. Uh, you and I and Drew know that prior to COVID, robust, vigorous, debate, respectful, but vigorous debate was the cornerstone of medicine. You just referenced mortality and, and morbidity as uh, something that is, you know, something long established in medicine where we get together behind closed doors and we kind of argue it out and say, did you consider this? What about that? What were you thinking? You know, again, not with an attempt to point fingers, but to have that robust debate that is critical for us to make the best decisions in medicine. I have never seen in my career, 30 plus years in medicine, something like this where I personally was shut down. I know you were you know, calling you a fringe uh, physician when you wrote the great Barrington Declaration. How preposterous. Talk a little yeah. bit about just your thoughts about the censorship thing and the cancel culture and what impact you think ultimately it had on this uh, last two and a half years. Well, I think... Uh... Uh, the, the the most important impact is that it permitted there to be this illusion of consensus about lockdown that never truly existed. Uh, in fact, I think a very large number of doctors, scientists, epidemiologists, and others were opposed to lockdown. They never never countenanced lockdown as the right thing to do. Um, but rather than let that debate go out to happen, there was essentially a propaganda campaign, intimidation campaign by the American government but I also think by the UK government and others um, in, to essentially order social media companies, many of whom were actually all too willing to go along, to suppress this debate from happening, to, to smear the, uh, the people who, dis, who disagreed with someone like Tony Fauci on almost any aspect of it, uh, and, and, then, and thereby essentially shut that debate down. So many doctors, so many uh, epidemiologists and scientists silenced themselves looking at the example of what happened to people who stuck their neck out. Um, and it's the, why would they do this? I, th I mean, I think part of the main reason is if you're going to impose something as extraordinary as a lockdown, if you're going to impose something that's gonna harm, and, and at least I should say impact the lives of so many people uh, th that's gonna require them to do so much self-sacrifice, 
you have to have something pretty close to a unanimous consensus within science. Very, very close to that. If you don't have that, you don't have a moral or ethical basis for, for asking the, the public to do that. Um, so they had to create this illusion of consensus that there was, a, you know, there Ugh. was this consensus. Gross. It really is. And so what they, what they ended up doing is it's just, it's just, uh, it's just, they had to, they had to smear me. They had to smear Kelly. They had to smear you, Drew, in order to get, get, get us inconvenient fringe characters out of the way so that they could tell the American public, the world public, that lockdown is the only way only legitimate scientists believe that. And it, but it really extended way beyond the lockdown issue, uh, Dr. J. I mean, it, it, we had this therapeutic nihilism uh, that they also created the uh, the illusion that there was consensus about that, that anybody who suggested uh, that we use the I drug or the H drug <laughs> or uh, that, that, that you were some sort of a conspiracy theorist tinfoil hat where, I mean, I received death threats. I was told I was going to be responsible for killing tens of thousands of people because I was uh, suggesting that they get prescriptions for these medications. The idea that you know they adopted this idea so quickly, one of my favorites was the social distancing. The idea that people yeah. are throwing this term around as if it's this established thing. And I would say to them, I have an entire office full of books on epidemiology, public health, pandemic management. You know, I defy you to find a textbook in which you will find the phrase social distancing in the index. It's made up. Um, it truly, truly scary stuff. Yet they, because they shut down so many people, so many of our colleagues, and I have my own issues with that, in the words of John Milton, you know, virtue untested is no virtue at all. Um, I think people had an obligation to stand up and speak out. Uh, and I have issue with my colleagues who didn't, but um, it really went far beyond the lockdown consensus or, or the illusion of consensus. It was across the board, everything from masks to to uh, therapeutics, vaccine safety, and on and on. I, mean, I think there's some sense of, uh, you know, there's a saying about power, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Um, what you had is a relatively small group of, of powerful science bureaucrats with incredible power over what the public perception of the scientific community was. Uh, and once they had successfully implemented that uh, power in imposing the lockdowns, how far is it to say, look, now we are so smart that we can we should be able to impose it over everything else? You have Tony Fauci going in front of the Senate and telling uh, the American people that if you criticize me, you're not simply criticizing a man, you are criticizing science itself. Uh, just think <laughs> about the hubris on that statement. I mean, I just- That's where he, he lost me completely that day. As I said, that that's where I said, if you look up hubris in the dictionary, it says, see also Anthony Fauci. Yeah, um, I don't know if you can talk about this, Dr. Bhattacharya, but you know, you're sitting in your office at Stanford University, uh, not exactly the, the mecca of conservatism uh, in a state not known for its uh, conservative uh, views. How is your experience as an academic sitting in a, uh, you know, in a very liberal institution during this? How has that been? You know, for 34 years, uh, I've been here 36 years. Uh, as for 34 years, it was amazing. Uh, it was a place that let me do my work. Uh, I've written controversial things. I'm, I, don't, I don't think public health is inherently left or right. 
uh, the, you know, I think wisdom comes from lots and lots of people, unexpected places often. And I would write things that sometimes will get picked up by the left and sometimes would get picked up by the right. And I just was just unable to predict who's going to, I mean, I'm just doing science. Uh, I mean, I don't think science is owned by either the right or left. I frankly never thought of it as particularly political. Um, the last two and a half years have been absolutely miserable. Stanford has been a hostile work environment for people that disagreed with the illusion of consensus. And especially for people on the right, I think it's been very difficult. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm really, um, I'm not sure what to do about that. I, I still love this place. I grew up here, frankly. Uh, I arrived when I was 18, uh, and I think it still has a lot to, good to do for the world. But there really does need to be a, a real reckoning at, 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 on this campus, not just this campus. I think universities around the country failed. They they put in vaccine mandates. They suppressed the work of people who disagreed with uh, with uh, the uh, you know the the, 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 science, the the supposed scientific consensus. They they uh, some many people you know people who signed the Great Barrington Declaration. Some of them got fired. Um, a lot of them. A lot of them lost grant opportunities. It made it very difficult to do science. Uh, and if universities don't make it easy to do science, what are they for? What purpose do they serve? Um, our, our top universities were corrupted during this in terms of their mission to, to, uh, to be places, refuges, where uh, controversial ideas can be hashed out and worked and tested uh, without fear of of, of slander without fear of, 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 of career destruction. Um, that is not what how our universities function and certainly not Stanford. It's really, I'm, I'm really disheartened to hear that. I can, o I can only imagine, and that's really the answer that I feared uh, that, that you would give. Um, if you look at the risk-benefit analysis that was just conducted using Pfizer's own safety data uh, prior to the release, it's only become available by aggressive FOIA requests. But if you look at the risk-benefit analysis that was calculated specifically for 18 to 29-year-olds with these vaccines, so we're talking about those students who are sitting there on your campus, you know, as well as young military recruits, uh, that analysis came to the conclusion that for every one hospitalization from COVID that would be avoided, you would have somewhere between 18 and 38 severe adverse events, uh, those being defined as one that caused death, near death, hospitalization, or permanent disability. Um, scary stuff. So clearly the analysis, the risk benefit analysis, uh, does not do, does not compute um, for these vaccines uh, for university students or healthy people. Does Stanford still have a vaccine mandate? Do they have mask mandates? What where are you sitting right now with regard to, you know, school as as you enter the fall here? I think there's a vaccine mandate for uh, for for young for uh, for students, but not for faculty. Uh, there's a there's there's a mask mandate only in classrooms. Um, uh, but uh, you're allowed to take the mask off if you're talking. Um, I've teach. I just started teaching class this <laughs> quarter. Uh, what I've noticed, uh, like you know, a class I've taught for 25 years, I've noticed that probably two thirds of students aren't wearing a mask. Uh, and I'm not. I'm not. I'm not the mask police. I'm not. I, my job is to teach, not to uh, enforce mask mandates. So uh, I, I, I don't, don't plan to enforce that mandate. Uh, students can do what they like, as far as I'm concerned. That's interesting. So, that so they have it. Stanford, I, just one one quick thing. Stanford was the source of this famous study about a year and a half ago, where they looked at uh, the number of Stanford students riding bikes with a helmet versus a mask. 
and it was like 80% mask on a bike outside and 20% helmet. So it's good to hear that some of that irrationality, that the students are restored into their rational state, which is nice to hear. But but if you take, you know, the mandate, so, so you know, you have a vaccine mandate for young people, your average student is younger than your average professor, uh, yet the mandate for the vaccines is for the people who are at the, le the less I risk. It. Of, I, I mean, I know. It's, it's, it's absolutely, and then, and then Berkeley, I understand, has a mask mandate now for anyone who isn't vaccinated for influenza. Uh, so we're now apparently going to um, extend oh this God. to the the absurdity continues. Where do you see you know where do you see this going? You're such a thoughtful uh, person. I, I probably more um, introspective than I am, uh, and and I would love to hear where where is this going in medicine? How are we going to heal for? For lack of a better yeah, word, how do we get how out? Do we how do we right? How do we how do we get heal out? and not let this and how does not happen again? It's it's because yeah. it's not over. No, uh, I'm, I'm I'm I don't I think um it's going to take a long time. Uh, the the people that uh, that made these decisions they're still in high positions of power, and I just don't see a way where the public um, gets the sort of the explanations they need until those people. Are no longer in those high positions of power. Uh, they made enormous mistakes. You know, in a war, if a general makes enormous mistakes, they they are relieved of command. Um, that needs to happen. Uh, the political price needs to get paid for mis uh, these these kinds of decisions. So, I mean, you're starting already to see that, right? So, Boris Johnson steps down, uh, not because of lockdowns per nominally, but but because he partied during a lockdown. That the you know the UK Prime Minister uh, Andrew Cuomo has to leave, not because he killed all these people uh, in uh, by sending COVID-infected patients to nursing home. No, that's not the reason. It's some other some other Trump uh, some other charge. Uh, it has nothing to do with lockdowns, of course. Um, yeah, oh, oh, you know, over and over and over again, you're seeing political leaders. Not everywhere. I mean, like <laughs> California is an exception, but um, many many places you're seeing uh, a political price paid for lockdown. And I think that unfortunately is really truly the only way forward. Um, you, if you, ha you have to ha you have to have the leaders that oppose the lockdown be lifted up, and the leaders that that were in favor of the lockdowns suffer some consequences. Uh, that because uh, uh, lockdown turned into such a political thing, the, the pandemic response turned into a political thing. And unfortunately, I think that the healing won't come from inside the medical profession or the public health profession. Uh, the leaders of that prof these professions have sort of circled the wagons and tried to pretend you know they give themselves awards um, and try to pretend they did everything right. I think until that the political leadership changes and then as a consequence, the leadership of medicine and the leadership of public health changes, the public will never trust medicine or public health again. And it will make it, make it enormously difficult for doctors and public health, uh, uh, you know, honest public health uh, um, uh, practitioners to do their job properly. Well, that's you, that's my big concern, and I've said this on the show many, many times. That uh, from a, if I put on my public health hat, my big concern is that we've done so much damage to people's confidence in public health that mm -hmm. God help us mm -hmm. when we sound the alarm bell the next time. And there will be a next time. There will be a next crisis when we need not only Americans yeah. but people around the globe to pay heed to listen to us. And instead, you know, what they're going to say is, you know, you fools, uh, let us. Down down a really you know horrible path last time and why the heck should we listen to you uh so but, i think that's very scary 
Kelly, the you you don't you don't make well. You come to Palm Springs. I know you're out here a little bit, but you, you, it's top of mind for the likes of Dr. Bhattacharya and myself that we are still under an emer- state of emergency here, uh, run by determined by a pediatrician with very little no adult experience and right. seemingly very little right. judgment around infectious disease. Probably good vaccine therapy, good with vaccine therapy in children, but that's it. We are and and no no day in sight where they're saying we're going to take this thing away. We are under an emergency are, act in this state. We, California is also 48 hours away from Gavin Newsom signing into law uh, mm. this, you know, 2098, which essentially criminalizes mm. our ability to do what we are doing right now, which is give uh, mm-hmm. alternate views, or certainly at least to give those views to our patients. Uh, informed consent, I will remind you, uh, again, is a key, you know, sort of a tenant of healthcare, giving informed consent to your patients. And if you do that now in California, if he signs this thing into law on Friday, which I have every reason to believe that he will, um, then anyone Sheesh. with a California medical license is at risk of sanction or loss of licensure, um, you know, some type of disciplinary action if they say mm. anything that is contrary to this uh, to this narrative that's been uh, hacked up by the powers that be. It's very scary stuff. And you you can see the uh, loss of confidence by the public and public health just by the vaccine uptake. For the the, yeah. the boosters, the these bivalent boosters, I think like uh, the Omicron boosters, it's like three four percent, and also the mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. toddler vaccine. I think it's, it's still there's like five six percent of the American public is uptaking them. Uh, the problem is like now you're also seeing a drop in uptake of absolutely necessary vaccines like polio, BPT, right. MMR. Um, you're seeing you know polio's return to the U.S. That means mm-hmm. that we're we're really in bad bad shape. Um, you have to have a functioning public health, and public health relies on the public trusting them. Um, I mean, people, the public isn't going to be able to look at every single thing and do policing on public health uh, diktats. They have to say, look, we have a public health uh, uh, agency, sets people that are that do care for us, that do want our best interests. And when they stop thinking that, they stop listening to public health indiscriminately. Uh, it's a it's a it's a complete disaster. Uh, and until public health and uh, medicine acknowledge their culpability, especially the leadership in that in this disaster, that's not going to get fixed. No, you're right. And I, you're you know, out there in Marin County. Marin County has very low vaccination rates for things like polio. And and that was a concern, seeing an increase or resurgence of polio, uh, unfortunately, because you've got a group of folks who have vaccine hesitancy combined with age where they are too young to remember that we had a sitting president in a wheelchair uh, as a result of polio. Uh, And so there's an age component there that they don't think these things can happen. So I agree with you. It's going to be devastating the, uh, the loss of confidence in public health in general. Vaccines specifically is going to be a real problem. And we, we talked at Sorry, length Drew. already about the impact on, yeah, and of course, the impact on the lower socioeconomic individuals. And, you know, we sort of glossed past the, the, the lack of schooling and the absence from schooling and kids that have still not even been retrieved and reentered the school system. I, I always like pointing out, I, I just, it, it, to, for me, when I think back on this pandemic, there, there's, you know, a few little vignettes that jump out. But, and I, Kelly's heard me say this before, but I'm going to say this for Dr. Bhattacharya, which is, 
that you know this the fact that the kids were left out of school was deeply disturbing to me. I, I in fact, and the, and the closure of the businesses and the loss of I just I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't sleep at night. I didn't understand how the leadership could go to bed. I didn't understand how they could do that. But I, I just want to point out this one image I have. Uh, from the Ukrainian invasion, this is going to be a, a little bit of a stretch, but Ukrainian invasion, uh, Russian in invasion of Ukraine. The, we had a massive exodus of women and children to the Polish border, and the men stayed behind, and there was a lot of press waiting at the Polish border talking to these Ukrainian women as they came across the border, and to a person. They said, "Yeah, it's terrible. Our husbands are, you know, are back there. Our brothers are back there. We, you know, this is an awful situation." Uh, but but these kids, they've been out of school for two weeks. Two weeks. We have to get them in school immediately. It's been two weeks, and they're pushing them into Polish-speaking schools, and they had to learn Polish because they were not going to stay out of school more than two weeks. And I thought to me that was like, well, of course that they were. They're sane. They're worried about what the kids' needs right. are. We were insane, insane, letting it go for two years. There's there's sort of this in, image that I have um, in my brain. I don't think I ever forget it the rest of my life. It was a from um, the San Jose Mercury News. It was like May 2020, I think was the date, and it was of two young Hispanic kids, maybe six, seven years old. They had their little Google Chromebooks that their school had given them, I guess. And their parents had dropped them off in front of a, of, a, of a Taco Bell because they didn't have internet at home. So they were sitting right. on the, effectively on the, in the street trying to do school in front of a Taco Bell, just a brother yeah. and sister. It, and it was, it was it, that it's... image I've never, why do we do that? Yeah. Like, how could we have done, shouldn't that have ended the lockdown? No, it's, but it's, yeah, so it's not only loss of, you know, of education, and we know now we are just beginning to understand how retarded uh, these kids are, and I mean that in the true sense of that word, how, how retarded they their educations will be because there is no such thing as real remote learning. But then you add on top of that the percentage of kids for whom school is the only, you know, lunch is the only meal they got regularly or reliably every day. Uh, so kids who, as you said, you know, kids from poorer families not only didn't have internet access, they lost their one reliable meal. Uh, we know that there was a significant drop in uh, diagnosis of hearing and vision issues, not because they went away, but because it's the teacher who recognizes that little Johnny isn't seeing the board. There was a massive increase in incidence of child abuse because kids were locked mm -hmm. at home with the abusers without the ability to talk to the PE teacher or the math teacher or whoever it is they normally would be able to confide in. Um, kids developed this psychosocial um, anxiety. Uh, you know, many, many kids were suffering from depression, uh, sleeplessness, anxiety, headaches due not only to the masks, but to just the, the fear of being around uh, people wearing masks. Still going. Kids, you know, it's still, still, yeah, still going. This is yeah. this is not a te temporary no. thing during the lockdown. This this has rolled on right. where these kids have had ongoing mental health problems. You early so on, Doctor Bhattacharya said on. clearly, clearly this group did not have any training, and I think you said child development or something. But I clear what was clear to me at the very outset: zero consideration for mental health. Zero. It's like it right. does not exist to them, and I think they still don't don't acknowledge it at all. One in four young adults in a CDC survey in June of 2020 report, reported that they had seriously considered suicide the previous month. Um, and that number should be like right. 
three percent, four. It should be zero, but like often three right. or three or four percent. It was twenty-five percent of the of American right. young adults seriously considered suicide. That's going to have consequences. It's not a surprise that alcoholism, uh, murder rates, uh, 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 overdoses have have just skyrocketed uh, during uh, you know as, as, a, as a as a sort of sequela of the lockdowns. Yeah. yeah. And in mid 2021, the CDC sort of, you know, quietly and unceremoniously changed their childhood milestones with regard to verbal mm. skills. Uh, instead right. of having to know, you know, 50 words by age 24 months, they changed it to, you know, 30 words by 30 months um, because no problem. Kids were no not developmental delay. Speak. Exactly. Took care of the yeah, problem. Kelly, they dealt with it. Yeah. Turns out it's if you don't actually, if you can't see mouth movements, uh, little children, you know, toddlers do not learn to speak if they can't see mouth movements and emulate mouth movements. Uh, but rather than acknowledging that impact of mask wearing, they just change the milestones. Kelly, they, they, it's so weird. Like you had the American Academy of Pediatrics come out and say, we know with certainty there's no developmental effects of mask wearing in toddlers. Well, how do they know that? Yeah. We've never done a study. Well, right. okay, let's 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 randomly assign kids toddlers to see what developmental effects it has. Uh, you know, because you would never do that study. It would be unethical to harm ch children in right. that way. Yeah. Well, the uh, the American well, Red Cross came out last. The American Red Cross came out last week and said that uh, they don't differentiate between the blood taken from vaccinated and unvaccinated people because they know that the mRNA doesn't enter the bloodstream. And I want to say. Uh, how do they propose that it ends up in every major organ system if it doesn't enter the bloodstream? Uh, osmosis, perhaps. Weird. Um, I mean, the things that are stated are so outrageous. And to think that you and I have been censored uh, for saying things that are supposedly misinformation uh, when the academies of our different uh, medical colleges are coming out with this stuff is, is outrageous. Guys, we got to kind of uh, move towards the exit here and wrap things up. Uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. I, I guess, uh, shall we say, Kelly, you last question, and maybe Dr. Bhattacharya, last comments. How about that? Yeah, I would just, I, I would really just throw it back to you um, to say, you know, what are your last thoughts on this, uh, Dr. Bhattacharya? Where would you like to see um, this go? You've talked uh, eloquently about the price that needs to be paid by those who are culpable. Um, but, you know, if you had, if you were ruling the world, if we put you in charge of all of this and how we get the heck out of this, um, what would you do? First, I'd resign. I, I'm, I'm entirely unsuited to rule the world. <laughs> um, I, I, I think, um, I think what has to happen uh, next is is uh, for, first we have to we, I, I, like it's it's really tempting to focus on like who did what wrong and all this, but like I, I do think M and M conference is necessary and important. But even more vital is to try to like start developing policies to redress and uh, remediate the harms of the lockdowns. And other policies for people that have been harmed. Uh, it's not. It's not a set deal that children, uh, you know, seven-year-olds who didn't learn to read the first two last two and a half years will never learn to read. We need to. We need to put in place literacy programs that we, you know, sort of redouble redouble those efforts. Uh, make make deep investments in in catching up on on cancer screening. Uh, on 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 like uh, on mental health, I'm not I'm not even sure what to do. It's the, the scope of the problem is so big, but we certainly uh, it's it's not a, it's not a done deal that that nothing can be done. Why not bring in people that are 
that are that, that really do have constructive ideas. Let's re, let's start to address the harms, the people that have been harmed by the lockdowns, and develop policies to try to to uh, to make make it so that those lockdown harms that that will have a long tail won't have such a long tail. Uh, rehire people that were that were fired because of vaccine mandates. Uh, start to like t- pr- tell people uh, your friends, your 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 uh, your your kids, your their, your your colleagues are not biohazards. They're they're uh, they're 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 fellow humans, and we're, we're you know we gain a lot from being in company with another. It's it's actually vitally important part of good health that we be in company with another. Don't think about other people as biohazards. Uh, in Belgium, I saw this. Uh, I was visiting Belgium this summer. I saw this campaign where they they where they say, "Look, look at your neighbor and smile." You you without a mask. They literally say that. Mm. Um, they have this like public mm. public campaign to try to tell people it's good to smile at people, see people's smiles. We should have, we start some messaging like that. I think um, we need to start to re- reintegrate people into society, and the and the people that are most scared about COVID try to address their fears as well, so that they can they can uh, they can inter- integrate. Uh, a lot of the harms don't have to happen, and so let's think of policies. It's an all a public health problem. Think of policies to try to try to redress those harms, so they don't 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 turn out to be quite as bad as I, as I, I as I predicted early. But I think so. I think you're. To... you're I think you're, as you say, I think I think that your your point is um, we we need to acknowledge that there were errors made. This is, goes back to the old adage, yes. you cannot start to come to the, conclu- the solution unless you are willing to say, this was wrong, and here we need to you know, go down the line. Here are the things we need to do to mitigate the damage that was done in, you know, to each of these groups of people or by each of these different things. There has to be an acknowledgement that there was an error, that this was misguided, uh, and then try to move forward with uh, with mitigation schemes. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Bhattacharya. There is nothing wrong with admitting mistakes in medicine. In fact, aren't we trained that if something goes wrong in uh, the care of a patient, the way to avoid a lawsuit is to immediately admit what happened and that it was an error and you, you know, and, and explain why the error was made and move forward and start taking care of the patient again. But on the other hand, uh, it occurs to me that the fact that we have to encourage people to look at each other and smile is a symptom of how deep down the rabbit hole we are. It's just so pathetic. But uh, there we are. And I hope one day, as you said, the what did you call it? The definitive history. Definitive history of this thing is written because only then can we really look at the history books and not repeat it. So Dr. Bhattacharya, you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. J. Bhattacharya, I think is the Twitter house. not up there right now. Uh, and I noticed Dr. Bhattacharya is getting a little more um, forthcoming on Twitter. It's lovely to see, and I, I, I look forward to his tweets, and they've been a little more, I wouldn't even say provocative. I just, they've been just more, you know, it's just been, no, no, no. They're just like, it's just like, you. I think you're, you're at your liberty to speak the truth, uh, and the truth is sort of there repeatedly in your tweets, and I, I'm loving seeing that. So keep yeah, it going. It's been, it's been, yeah, Monica. I, I, I joined Twitter a year ago. I, I, I did. I was really cautious at first, just, just because I, I don't know. I didn't know what they. What, I could it tell. Is, it is, it is a place. I just wish it wasn't sent. It wasn't censorship. Otherwise, it's fantastic. I know. And Monica Gandhi was telling me that she's t- so tired of fighting the fight. So don't get, don't get tired. Keep, 
keep pushing the truth out there. People are seeing it and hearing it. And you write nice, clear tweets that every time I go, yep, that's exactly right. So please do keep doing so. And of course, uh, Dr. Kelly Victory was here with me every Wednesday and she'll be back uh, as you know, you guys know her. Uh, do we have a plan for next week yet? Anybody? Is that uh, set up? I know We're I've working got, on it. Okay. I know I've got uh, Michaela Peterson coming by here for one of the uh, Monday or Tuesday of next week. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, I've got a really interesting guy who was one of my, I don't know if you guys know this, but I trained with special ops forces in the Jordanian desert. And Remy was one of the key figures in all that. But he has a really interesting movie coming out about... Um, human trafficking. And so I wanted to support that and give him a chance to promote it. So uh, I hope I'll see you both soon. Dr. J, thank you for being here. Kelly, I'll see you next week. And the rest of you will see you tomorrow at three o'clock Pacific time. Thanks. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. Hey.